Welcome to Sexcavation, hosted by me, Bridget Woods. We're here to take you on a deep dive into sexuality and gender research. Sexcavation helps break down those big concepts you've probably heard before. Ideas like heterosexism, polyamory, toxic masculinity, with the help of some pretty cool psychologists, academics, and activists. Our mission is to make all of this complicated research on sex and gender accessible to everyone because, let's be real, it affects all of us. Today I am joined by Dr. Pani Farvid, an assistant professor of applied psychology at the New School in New York City. Prior to taking on this role, she was a senior lecturer in psychology at Auckland University of Technology in New Zealand. Pani has worked on projects examining heterosexual casual sex, the New Zealand sex industry, online dating, mobile dating, and sugar dating. She's currently heading two large projects, one examining ethical mobile dating and another that's looking at the health and well-being of non-gender conforming individuals of color across the U.S. She recently set up the Sex Tech Research Lab at the New School, which you can check out at sextechlab.org. Pani helps us make sense of dating in these uncertain times we're living in. Let's dive in. So thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Pani Bar- Farvid. Um, so happy to have you here with us. Thank you. No, I'm very excited. It's nice to have things like this to do um, while we're all kind of stuck at home. Definitely. Yep. And, and we will definitely be talking about that for sure today a little bit as well. Um, but sort of, let's sort of start with where you kind of came into your research. So I know recently you've been doing a lot more on online dating and what that looks like, both before the situation we're living in now and currently. Um, mm-hmm. So what got you interested in that, this kind of research? Yeah, I think really early on and even in under, when I was an undergrad, Um, I became extremely interested in gender and sexuality and um, sort of pursued that line of study into my graduate studies. And uh, for my, this was in New Zealand, and so the kind of uh, structure is slightly different, but I did a small honours thesis or honours dissertation, which looked at male and female sexuality in women's magazines. And then for my master's thesis, I looked at, young women's experiences of casual sex and that was sort of at a time when like the hookup culture and the hookup scene and all that was of great interest to the media there was almost a bit of a moral panic around casual sex and hooking up and I also ended up doing my doctoral my PhD thesis on that PhD research so yeah I guess I've always been I've gravitated towards gender and sexuality I think particularly because of gender to me and and a lot of other people underpinning such a important domain of inequality for so many of us and so that's one area the reason why I was interested in it and of course gender and sexuality are quite intimately bound to each other and yes and I guess as I progressed through like PhD and so on it, it appeared that I was not only interested in gender and sexuality but also how the power dynamics in new and emerging domains of intimacy were shaped so for example one of my biggest interests in casual sex was to see if you know traditional heterosexual patterns of inequality were being uh, replicated or challenged or something like a bit of both so those are always theoretically those are a lot of the questions that I'm asking most of the time is 
what's going on here, even at a micro level, uh, in terms of gender and power within this intimate context. And I think as I have progressed, I've increasingly progre progressed in my career, I've been increasingly interested in what sometimes can be identified or termed as kind of the fringe intimacies or evolving domains of um, digitally mediated intimacies. And I've done a little bit of work um, around sex work as well. And I've done some work with a student looking at camming or online sex work. Mm. So I would just kind of say that my interest at the core of it is really about gender equality, ethical relationality, egalitarianism within intimate relationships from a very micro level. So, you know, in the bedroom, then I guess expanded out to relational level, social level, and a macro structural policy level as well. So when we're looking at something like sex work or the way we manage sex work legally, or if we look at broad patterns or structures of gender inequality uh, globally, those are also sit within my interest. But at the core of it, you know, my work, my interest is really an interest in applying psychological theory and knowledge and research to promote social justice. So all my work has a social change orientation, whether that's at the like individual level, the community level, the relational level, the social level, or the policy level. That's what guides my research. So that, that sort of broad interest then takes me into different areas. So sometimes it might be that I work with marginalized groups, uh, sometimes it might mean that I'm focusing on a very specific aspect of digitally mediated intimacies like camming and sort of teasing apart or analyzing the nuances of that new form of sex work and whether it, how it relates to other forms of sex work, whether it offers, for example, greater safety or freedoms to women or does it just um, reify previous modes of inequality, but in a new um, sort of digital space. Very cool. There's so much there I want to kind of come back to because it all just sounds so interesting. Something else you said that sort of stuck in my mind just because it sounds so interesting is this idea of fringe intimacies. Um, and I think it's such a compelling term and I'm, I'm curious if you can kind of talk more about it. But I think specifically thinking about this term intimacy as it's used, because I think often that that is a term that is not used as, uh, as much in, in sort of talking about gender and sexuality in, in broader terms. So I, I'd love to hear you expand yeah, on that a little. Yeah, yeah. I sometimes almost uh, feel like I use that term fringe intimacy almost a bit tongue in cheek and almost like in quotes, quotation marks, because I think very often things like um, casual sex, things like mobile dating, things like sex work, uh, things like camming, by some people, some sectors of society or some individuals or even maybe researchers, they, they're sort of cast aside as not worthy of investigation because they only apply to a certain or a limited subset of the population. And I think that's highly problematic thinking because number one, all these sorts of behaviors are A, often way more widespread than first considered. B, just because it a behavior doesn't fit into the status quo or the normative terrain does not mean it means it probably requires even more analysis to understand why it's happening what it means one of the main theoretical concern in my work is to expand boundaries of 
what is considered intimacy the norms about intimate interactions so for example things like heteronormativity um, things like defined and polarized heterogendered norms um, you know mononormativity or the idea that you must be in a monogamous relationship with one person for life or if you're not doing that at least you're in a serial monogamous context i guess all the sorts of truisms that most many people buy into when it comes to relationships I like to think that my work is kind of, it can be situated within the critical heterosexualities area. And it's really working to dislodge and dismantle a lot of the givens within both heterosexuality and beyond. Because although they appear normal, it's more the case that they have become normalized or naturalized over certain centuries or decades and because of various social cultural and historical and economic traditions or conventions so i guess a lot of my work you know and why sometimes why i study the fringe aspect is to show that actually sometimes even what we consider fringe intimacies is so dominated by the uh, very normative and status quo relational structures, which tells us something about how deep and entrenched those kinds of beliefs and norms are. And yeah, but I think, you know, creating fissures in what people take for granted as normal and natural, particularly because in a lot of those instances, say, for example, normative heterosexuality or heteronormativity, we know that it's predicated on a very binary gendered system of various forms of masculinity and femininity. And that within that context, the roles and attributes associated with femininity are much more devalued than the roles and attributes associated with masculinity. And while there's a sense of a different but equal um, and polarized but com complementary, we know that that's not how it unfolds. And that within the traditional, you know, this was the second wave feminist critique, you know, traditional heterosexuality does a huge disservice to women in all sorts of spheres, you know, mentally, physically, psychologically, in terms of their unpaid labor, in terms of their freedom, uh, physical freedoms, um, power, autonomy over their own body and so on so I guess I really come from that find a lot of um, my initial inspiration in those ways of thinking you know the critical second wave feminist did an amazing job of critiquing the institution of heterosexuality and we sort of lost that somehow in the last sort of 30 years and that's an area that I'm very interested in looking at that a the way in which normative heterosexuality shapes our daily life and creates inequalities across the board, but also be how normative aspects of heterosexuality also seep into what we consider fringe and to really construct them as not that fringe, really. They're just an extension of the same system, but just happening in different contexts, um, in different, under different circumstances, and perhaps in more blatant or more covert ways. So what I'm trying to say is, for example, if you think about sex work, right, sex work is an extremely polarizing topic. It's emotionally charged. It um, creates a lot of emotive, visceral reactions in individuals when we talk about them. There's a lot of debate within society and within feminist gender political social theory around it, whether it should exist, how it should exist, how it should unfold. All that aside, I want to bring to bring up the 
you know, the conservative or um, moralistic or religious opposition to sex work. So there's this idea that the monetary exchange, if it takes place, if you're paying for sex directly, it's amoral. It's, it's a, you know, it's a, it's a problematic, it's obscene, it shouldn't be happening that way. However, if you break it down, the conventional heterosexual marriage is really the same exchange happening, but more covertly. So you basically have a woman who is given away by the father traditionally to be taken care of by another man. And the, and the exchange there is that she, what she's bringing to the table is that she will offer domestic labor, sexual labor, and other labor, I suppose, emotional labor, um, perhaps also work for money outside the home, but traditionally not. So working in the home and what he brings to the table is economic security. And so that itself is, again, an exchange of, you know, uh, some form of physical and sexual labor and emotional labor in response to his economic upkeep. So this is really what, what, sex work is doing is just making the transaction more transparent and it's making it you know by the hour and so for me technically i then think if you're a conservative and against sex work then technically you're against <laughs> traditional marriage because in some ways if you break it down it's the same thing and i guess these are the sorts of hypocrisies that i just really enjoy tearing apart or bringing to light um you know there's this brilliant film called 10 it's a iranian film from about 15 years ago and it involves a woman a female a woman taxi driver she picks up 10 different guests 10 different taxi riders and just talks to them and it's all centered around this but one of the women that she picks up as a sex worker you know the taxi driver is kind of you know coming from that slightly like moralistic or questioning position of you know why do you do this all this kind of stuff and the sex worker is like why not and kind of really pushing back and kind of also challenging the driver and going what do you think just because you're married to your husband that somehow it's holy or untouchable or it's sacred and she's like she actually says honey um you're the wholesaler i'm the retailer you know and i think that's just such an interesting way of looking at the sexual politics and gender politics of our time and so this is kind of what i'm trying to say in terms of i look at the spectrum of heterosexuality from the very normative to the what's considered non-normative or fringe but to point out they're really based on a very similar system and it's the it's that core system that needs a reworking and rethinking if we are to achieve greater equality definitely definitely i love that and, and thank you for the example i'm i'm curious because it's sort of the first thing that came to mind in that example is also a sort of making transparent the power, right? Or the trying in some context to equalize that power. And you did say that like a lot of what your interest was in studying critical heterosexuality or the the foundation of it was looking at these power dynamics. So I wonder if you could sort of expand upon that a little bit. Yeah. And I think that's, that's the thing, basically it's the, you know, the real concern isn't about the exchange of sex for money or economic upkeep. It's the fear around woman, a woman being in charge of her sexuality and using it based on her own terms. And we can sit here and debate for a long time the choice to get into the sex industry and how much of a free choice it is for some women. But that aside, society has had a long-standing paranoia, fear, concern, and phobia around female sexuality, right? If female sexuality was 
if you you could say truly liberated and not so limited by the current power structures that we see um it might look very different i'll take an example from like the animal world so in the animal world typically most of the time those who are in charge of um those who give birth have a lot of power within the ecological situation and it's often the men um the males of the species that have to be adorned or have be have pretty feathers or have ways of attracting the female to procreate with them or to mate with them now what's happened in the human world is that we've turned that upside down and i think this is where patriarchal power relations have come in somewhere pretty early on someone's realized hmm if these people the ones with the wombs were really able to be in control of those wombs we're going to be in trouble And so I think a whole host of energy has been channeled into into making sure that not only is female sexuality dirty, wrong, must be hidden, but that women are not in control of their own bodies, autonomy or reproduction. And one of the best examples of this is monotheistic religion in the form of Christianity. So the the mother of Christ it was not even acceptable for her to have had sex that's how scared we are of female sexuality she had to be a virgin and so you know these things have an impact and they tell us a story about how much our society is afraid of free and unfettered female sexuality mm-hmm. and when a woman is in charge of her sexuality we don't know what to do with that it freaks us out and i think that this is what's going on within a lot of the backlash or moralizing around sex work is that it's not actually about the exchange of funds it's really about female sexuality ostensibly being in charge ostensibly being in control being on display and profiting directly rather than indirectly and you know the power relations of the sex industry are still fraught because really the consumer or the one with who's spending the money has a lot of power but i think those are the things that make people uncomfortable for example we know that you know sex work has become an extremely massive industry in the contemporary post consumer capitalist context but often when we see debates about it it's not about it as a large scale industry it's more about those who work on the street or or a brothel in a suburban neighborhood so it, it's not about the actual sex industry it's about the visibility of female sexuality and we know that in the industry only about 10% of it is street sex work and the rest is in house so mm. this is sort of you know just really calling out and drawing attention to these hypocrisies i think is sort of one of the um main aspects of my work yeah i think it's uh, really interesting the sorts of things we we viscerally react to i think affect is a very important indicator of social and cultural discomfort around certain things um that's something for us to always keep an eye on you know what makes you uncomfortable and why yeah and you know and i think all the politics of you know sex work it doesn't matter where your political leanings lie 
but you know it is one industry um that you know women make a lot of money in but it's also one that consumer is completely invisible and the problem child of the industry is always seen as the woman either she's seen as the victim or she has she's seen as a problematic citizen within society and that in itself is a form of inequality because there is privilege and invisibility when you're a huge part of a particular market. Definitely. I, I also wonder if sort of the the fact that there's no structural support of sex work, as you sort of were talking about, that also lends itself to you cannot be fully protected or autonomous working, right? Because you do not have these the support of institutions or systemic resources or things like that, that at your hand. Well, I think that's a huge, huge, huge problem globally, right? Um, And there are obviously a lot of different legal frameworks for dealing with sex work and prostitution, but that generally all over the world, it's either illegal and enforced, it's illegal and kind of unenforced, or the officials look to the other side, or yeah, it's, it's sort of heavily criminalized and sometimes it's criminalized in the way that it's the sex worker who is not the consumer not the buyer but in New Zealand where I have come from and done some of this work um, it has actually been decriminalized uh, nationwide and I think you know among sex workers and sex worker organizations that's their preferred mode of legal um, model but I do think it's very important that once that legal model is established that it doesn't just make us think that then the industry is now perfect you know we're in a neoliberal consumer capitalist society that suffers from various axes of inequalities and with any worker and I think the sex industry needs to also be scrutinized under the same kind of put under the microscope in the same way that other service industries might um, because it's, it's it's a highly gendered industry most buyers are heterosexual men most sellers are women even in a context like New Zealand where it's decriminalized I think it's really important to continue to do a critical analysis of the inner workings of the industry and you know who is privileged within who earns the most who's on the street who doesn't get accepted into brothels you know and so there's a whole range of issues that I think need to be kind of looked at that really speak to broader structures of power however I think you know it is extremely dangerous and difficult when you're in a context where it's illegal particularly when the worker is the one that's criminalized and not the buyer. Absolutely. You mentioned sort of um, this idea of visibility is a very important thing and that the majority of sex workers are not the ones who are working on a street or working in a, you know, a house or something like that. So I wonder how has the digital age, how has technology opened itself up to, to sex work and what does that do for ideas of visibility and even power perhaps? Um, how has that sort of changed the way that sex work maybe is not done, but but viewed or seen? Yeah, that's a really good question. Perhaps it has been one of the outcomes is sex work coming into a little bit of the digital mainstream before. So it's not as underground or hidden. You know, there are various online forums where you were, you can discuss these sorts of things. There are various online forums where people can post, especially when it's a, when it's decriminalized, you know, post their profiles and so on, sex workers. And um, there's a bit of a review culture that can occur where um, what we in New Zealand call pundits, or you might call Johns, you know, leave a review for their experience with a sex worker, which is good and bad. 
um, or, or can be useful and problematic. But I think in a, in a context where it's illegal, I suppose it allows uh, direct contact by a sex worker to her clients, right? So you can self-promote, you can self-market. But I think one of the interesting things with regards to that is it could mean that a sex worker can take much more control over her own work, but it is a lot of immaterial and invisible labor that they're engaging in so that all the work that goes into getting many Twitter followers or Instagram followers who might like to then book you or see you online if you're doing a camming session. Um, I think that it's, it's extremely laborious work. <laughs> and I yeah. often wonder if it's uh, compensated accordingly. I think um, it's, it's highly likely that considering the amount of work that goes into cre uh, creating a profile, sustaining a profile, maintaining interest. And, you know, the sex industry is a busy, it's a noisy world. So you have to somehow stand out possibly. And so I think it's changed it in ways that it's possible that uh, sex workers now have to engage in other forms of labor they previously didn't have to engage in. And I'm not sure how well they're compensated yeah. And I, I think also about just now the access to different kinds of um, images of sexual, like, you know, pornography, things like this, and the sort of then potential devaluing of what sex work actually is and does. And, and I can imagine there's sort of this... Um, misunderstanding that like sex workers need to be compensated for the work that they are doing because it is work and also again going back to this lack of support from you know structure and things like that how that plays together to sort of um uh, hurt sex workers absolutely i mean the thing is even within a decriminalized context like new zealand so that's been like so 2003 that's been like 17 years it is still very clear that sex work and sex workers are stigmatized mm. and that stigma has a lot of ramifications so there's emotional labor with the client there's physical labor with the client oh getting ready for the client there's sexual labor with the client then there is social and psychological labor and in, in you're outside of the work so this the social labor is how do i manage telling or not telling people whether i'm a mm. sex worker when I do tell other people, it's a contentious topic. There's a lot of managing of that situation. And then there's a psychological labor for those, for example, who do tell some people, don't tell other people. There's a lot of work going on. It's a heavy, heavy cognitive load. A lot of work going on, keeping perhaps those two separate lives. Maybe you have children, you don't want them to know. Maybe you have, you know, uh, you're trying to keep that kind of information from the school, whatever it is. So it's a, it's highly laborious work because it's stigmatized. And so to answer your question now, in a decriminalized context, that's already happening. Now bring that into the US context where it's illegal. You're talking about a highly stigmatized profession that now is also extremely vulnerable because it has absolutely no labor rights or legal rights um, when it comes to a whole host of things. So in New Zealand, the sex workers are basically bound by the overriding labor rights in, in New Zealand, they're just treated as another worker. They can take cases of discrimination or sexual assault openly, although those things can still be difficult. Whereas in places where it's illegal, you basically have an already marginalized and stigmatized population then being made even more vulnerable to abuse and um, mistreatment. And that's, that's alarming. Definitely.
to sort of sh to shift gears slightly here, I'm, there is a relationship here in sort of thinking about how the digital world has also impacted dating and relationships, right? <laughs> Specifically as it comes to sort of heterosexual relationships and, and partnerships. And I wonder like sort of how this has shaped not only potentially gender norms and gender roles, if you've noticed that or not, um, and how it might have potentially affected power dynamics again or not. So I think that's a really fascinating concept. And yeah, we did some, um, as soon as Tinder reached New Zealand, we started doing some research on it some years ago. And we did probably one of the first studies on, you know, young heterosexual women's experiences of using Tinder. And, you know, it was um, fascinating. So I think along the lines of, um, you know, some of the great work done by Carol Vance in the 1980s, where, you know, she really sort of talked about female sexuality, whether straight or not, is a domain simultaneously imbued with pleasure and danger. It's, it's a tricky area, right? And so we know that female sexuality, and let's say, for example, now female heterosexuality, it's a context that requires very active negotiation by women. But it's a context where, for example, if you're mobile dating, the woman that we interviewed told us stories that really kind of harked back to this idea of pleasure and danger. So for example, and, and this was also evident in my casual sex research, for example, so when you ask a woman um, about what the risks for women when it comes to mobile dating is that they might die, they might get raped or they might die. That's the first thing on their mind. Let's make sure I don't get raped or die. The biggest concern for men is I hope she looks like her photo. I hope she's not like overweight or unattractive. So this is the terrain we're working with, right? So this is immediate inequality terrain. One person's worried about death or sexual assault. One person's worried about the other person not being as attractive as promised. Okay. But then let's take it back a few notches and talk about women's experiences. I think it's important to point out that within this, you know, the heterosexual dating landscape is one that's extremely tricky and risky for women. However, we identified that something like Tinder also offered an avenue for exploration and experimentation for women who don't necessarily get to do that in a public domain. So we had a few individuals who basically said, you know, sometimes I want to have an intimate connection or I literally just want to have sex, but I don't want to go down to a bar and pick someone up that doesn't feel fun, interesting or safe or like it would even get the results I want. So then this way I can look at to chat to people in the privacy of my own home and if I find someone who's attractive then uh, we might meet up and if the attraction is still there we can have sex so there was a it was a domain for self-exploration and even women exploring their sexuality outside of heterosexuality so I think you know I really come from that the camp of I think that new technological developments and advancements always offer some great positive potential but they also always already exist in our or come to being in our contemporary social political context which has its own uh, power differentials and axes of privilege so that's going to get um, most usually those sorts of things unfold in those domains whilst the technology perhaps offers us some way of uh, pushing the boundaries and reworking the norms right much like when the internet <laughs> came to be a thing people were very excited that it was going to be democratizing that it was going to mean equal access to knowledge equal access to the same things and of course 
that didn't quite um, manifest, but it has allowed a range of things to happen um, that have been positive that it wouldn't have been possible if the internet didn't exist. And I think that's sort of how I feel about when new technologies arrive in the intimate domain. I think they offer space for pressure, resistance, and uh, renegotiations um, and shifting the boundaries of what's acceptable, normal, um, and empowering us individuals, society, to rethink how we've been doing things. But we can't get away from the idea that these um, mechanisms, these technologies come um, with cultural baggage. They come, they are part of a society that is unequal to start with. And even, you know, the designers, the user experience, the user design, the, the companies who make these things, how they envisage the customer, all that stuff comes into it as well that really create, can create an um, sort of unequal situation. But so we know that, for example, for men, men's and women's experiences, and also like, I guess, across the demographic spectrum, it is rather clear that those who have the least amount of, I guess, harassment or abuse are often white and straight, and then men. And and the sorts of, the, the harassment, the abuse, or the, um, that we see is often committed towards, you know, uh, women, people of color, um, people of, who are sexual minorities, people who are gender minorities. So we definitely know that these are not democratic and fully egalitarian or ethical domains. And we really need a greater sense of, I guess, um, ethical relationality within these contexts. Some of the reasons why this unfolds is because of broader power relations where somehow acceptable for a man to send an unsolicited dick pic to someone that he's just met, um, which is you would think in another world would be unthinkable, unthinkable that you would just send a picture of your genitalia, but it's just so normalized and so mundane uh, that we, sometimes we don't think twice about it. I guess if, you know, to sort of hone in on one aspect of how has, you know, technology accelerated specific modes of I say I would say misogyny is that for example we definitely know that there is a particular phenomena called men's rejection reactions so and this is in the heterosexual and bisexual context so we've talked to heterosexual women and bisexual women so basically men's rejection reaction is one where it can come in the form various forms and in various domains so it can be online so you you match with someone, they say hello, you don't respond. They say, I didn't like you anyway, and they unmatch you. Or you say hello, they say hello, you chat, they ask you out, and you say, actually, I'm not that interested. And they'll be like, yes, well, you're an ugly bitch anyway, and I'm going to come and find you and rape you. So extremely over the top, unacceptable, sexist, misogynistic, threatening, abusive behavior, and completely not in line with uh, what's been going on. So it's an exaggerated response. It's an amplified response. You know, when someone just says, no, thank you, instead of going, okay, well, thanks anyway, it's like, I'm going to hunt you down and kill you. And then, so then, and then it can also happen in person. So say you've met someone on a mobile dating site and you meet them, you maybe are having a drink and it's then hard to say no to progressing the date. They get shitty, they get upset with you that you don't want to go back to their house. And then some of our, the women that we interviewed had ended up in people's houses or had ended up with someone in their house. And then 
sort of changed their mind, but they didn't feel safe enough to say no. So there was a lot of discussions of going along with sex in a context that they didn't want to have sex because of the pressure uh, experience, you know, verbal coercion, and, and also the fear of what might happen if they really said no. So I guess what I'm trying to say is that women's real experience and real fears of men's amplified rejection reactions is a problem that we're still having but now it's gone from the you know we do know historically that a lot of women talk about going along with sex because they are scared to say no because they don't know what might happen or how the situation might escalate but now we're seeing that happen in the online domain where women do feel safe saying no because they're not in the same they're not physically co-present men are like they're exploding in response and you know some feminists like laura thompson's written a really good book about this called uh, i'll be your tinder nightmare (laughs) Um, where she analyzed um that Instagram page, Tinder Nightmares, and also by Philippe, where people post like problematic or misogynistic um, interactions they have with men. And she kind of distilled it to this idea that, you know, when a man has matched with you and then instigated a conversation, there's a sense of entitlement, entitlement to your body, entitlement to your affect, entitlement to your desire. And I remember I had this actual experience myself once back in the day before dating apps, I was sitting in a very casual neighborhood bar um, with a friend, girlfriend, just chatting. And this guy quite, quite tipsy comes up with his friend and sort of talking to us. And he's like, so, you know, can I have your number? Can we go out? I'm like, no, thank you. I'm, I'm fine. Thanks. And he's like, what? Why not? And I'm like, I just don't feel like it. And he's like, but you're my type. And I'm like, that's nice for you. But just because I am your physical type does not mean you're entitled to a date with me. And that is what male entitlement means in that moment. And I think that's what's going on in some of the um, misogynistic interactions that we're seeing online is that it's this kind of like, I made the effort to say, hello, you owe me. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I think, you know, those broader power structures, we're seeing them unfold in the digital dating domain but there's also a little bit of safety in that you're not physically co-present but I think there's also three things going on psychologically in terms of anyone or bad behavior online uh, and bad behavior on dating apps there is anonymity so you don't really know who that person is you can't really track them down maybe but you know it's immediate anonymity you know um there's a lack of accountability so no one's really going to tell you off if you call someone a whore or a bitch no one's really gonna the police isn't going to turn up (laughs) your mom's not going to tell you off (laughs) and then i think the third one and i think this is where work and what my work is trying to address needs to happen is called moral distancing. So there's this notion that because you're online, I can treat you worse than I normally would if we were in person. So it's kind of like if you're in a, at a party or at a gathering, imagine if someone came up to you and was like, uh, can I please have your number or hello, you seem nice. And you were like, oh, thank you, but no, thank you. It's unlikely that in that moment they would shout in your face, fuck you, you ugly bitch. 
And so there is an aspect of moral distancing that, that's happening in that moment where the dehumanization of the other person is more mm-hmm. possible because uh, maybe, you know, they seem more like an avatar than a human. And so people feel it's more socially acceptable to behave um, inappropriately. And I guess that's one of the things I would like to see cultivated is this kind of like ethical online relationality where you would treat the person on the other end of any message that you'd either either met with a respect, um, you know, that you might if they were right in front of you or, you know, if they were someone you cared about, even though you don't know them. So there are some complications and there are some challenges, but it is also a space that I do think offers us in the contemporary context, the capacity for greater connectivity, the capacity for making connections. You know, we know right now, most of the world is under some kind of lockdown, you know, and right now in New York City, it's we're in our eighth week, I think. Um, And, you know, uh, there has been at least a 30% uh, rise in mobile dating activity is really offering people who are on their own some social connection beyond their friends and family. And there's a little bit of camaraderie or sense of community because you're all experiencing the same thing and you, it's easier to kind of connect over and discuss. So I'm, you know, I don't think it's all bad. I just think all new technology offers us something, um, something greater, greater connectivity, greater access to a pools of people. That's one of the things that young people, and people who use mobile dating also talk about is, you know, it allows me to meet people that I wouldn't otherwise meet. Interesting people, new people, fun people, diverse people. But what I truly believe in, and I've also seen through my research, is any technology does not come to be and does not unfold in a cultural vacuum so it's going to be affected by the broader social and political power structures and stratifications you know race class ethnicity um able-bodiedness sexual orientation all sorts of things you know geographic location immigration status all those things are going to matter um, in this context as well and shape experiences differently Definitely, definitely. But I'm really just curious to to hear your perspective on whether you think sort of coming out of this specifically sort of isolation and imposed sort of quarantine that many people are currently uh, living in, if you think that this sort of um, the fact that so many more people are engaging with dating apps and things like that right now, and there is this potentially perceived, you know, maybe level of safety where that same fear of being in person with someone may not have come to bear yet. Um, I wonder if you think that this is going to potentially affect dating um, norms and relationship norms in the future, especially because, as you just said, so much of it is culturally contextual. We're having these political, these social, these economic changes as well. So Mm. all of that together, do you think that's going to impact once people can kind of be back in person? Great question. And to answer you, I can draw on a a current survey that we're running, current piece of research. It's still ongoing, so I can talk about some of the preliminary findings. So basically, yes, we're running a survey on, you know, mobile dating during COVID-19. And some of the things that we're finding is very similar around that kind of pleasure and pain dynamic for both men and women. So it's allowing for greater connectivity. It's allowing for um, easing boredom for, you know, both genders. Um, And for some, 
it's, you know, for some men are like, it's great. We, I, I immediately feel like we have something in common or something to talk about, but we've also had some things that are gendered, gendered responses. So for example, a woman saying that, you know, some women say I'm getting less dick pics. So that's great. Others say I'm getting more dick pics. Um, and then there is also this extended courtship practices that are relatively foreign to kind of, you know, our, our, I don't know, the last 15 years of our generation or more, you know, so this kind of like you haven't met someone, you meet with online, people are getting very creative in the way that they're dating, they're video chatting, they're watching movies together online, they're ordering the same food and eating it together, but online. So there's been lots of discussion of this positive response to, I like it that I can get to talk to someone. This is both men and women get to really know them. Um, do I like it that we can be creative in what we're doing and think outside the square. It's interesting. It's new. It's fun. It allows me, you know, connection. And I think a lot of single people, especially if they live alone at the moment, are actually feeling like no one's really thinking about them. They're sort of feeling a bit like invisible and this is allowing them some connection. But then on the other side, we've seen a, what's a hypersexualization. So it's sort of lifting the lid to that slightly more sort of less ethical aspect of online dating. So what we're seeing is that some women report that a small percentage of men are making uh, mobile dating contact immediately hypersexualized. So they basically, you know, you say, hello, how are you? And they're like, you know, hi, what are you into? And do you want to, you know, send me a nude? Here's my Snapchat. You know, so they look that there, I, you know, it's a, it's a process of escalation. So basically women saying that uh, you either get asked for like dirty talk you get asked for nudes, pictures, or then you're asked to do like casual sex online or, or some kind of online erotic thing. And alarmingly, we've had a lot of women report that men have asked them to meet offline for sex, even in times of quarantine. So we're doing some, you know, analysis of what all that means. And there's different types of, you know, what I, what I would like to say is that, you know, times where masculinity is undergoing transformations sort of for some time we wish it would escalate but so we know a lot of men are not buying into reifying reproducing dominant exploitative or problematic masculinities but there's still some men who see these moments as an opportunistic way of you know utilizing and demanding uh, free sexual labor from women w without having made any kind of connection so that it can be mutual. They, they, there's no space for the woman to even desire because his desire is already superimposed onto hers right from the beginning. So for me, I don't have a problem with online sexting, get amongst, have, have your fun, but it should be mutually negotiated rather than, hey, what's up? I'm just going to ask 10 women in a row if they're willing to show me their breasts. And instead of getting to know someone and it naturally evolving into a sexualized interaction, the findings are unfolding. But I guess what we're seeing is some really positive outcomes of this with regards to greater connectivity for individuals. And I'm not saying, oh, let's all go back to like, 500 years of courting but what I'm saying is that it people are really enjoying the capacity to get to know individuals and, and there is a sense of like possibly like quarantine fatigue like oh we've been talking for this many hours or days or months will this peter out will I get to meet you and when I get to meet you there's a sense of still concern that will the chemistry or attraction be there in person so there are some concerns but I do think it's lifted the lid 
on some of the problematic stuff that happens online. And hopefully it means we can have a broader conversation about that. And I think a lot of things that people used to put up with, maybe they won't put up with anymore. And they will understand through going through this experience that, oh, actually, you know, I prefer this kind of mobile dating. Well, actually, I'm really into the online sex thing, but I don't like it being forced on me. You know, I don't know. So I think it's really, it's lifting the lid on some of the kind of, um, the ways in which we might act out. Um, And I also think, but it is definitely, definitely offering the capacity for greater connection for individuals who are, um, yeah, on their own or maybe, you know, in a flat with another person and um, needing some more human contact, (laughs) digital human contact. Right. Absolutely. Thank you so much for for sitting down and talking with me today. I think this was such an amazing conversation. So I really appreciate it. You're welcome. I hope it um, didn't go off on too many random tangents. (laughs) You can be a part of Pawnee and her team's research project by checking out the link bit.ly forward slash COVID dating. You can also learn more about Pawnee at her website, pawneefarvid.com. Want to learn more about what you heard? Head over to sexgenlab.org to find all the blogs, infographics, and videos on gender and sexuality research. Maybe you have an idea or topic you want us to discuss. You can email us at sexcavationpodcast at gmail.com. This has been Sexcavation with Bridget Woods. Hope you've enjoyed the dig. 